This is the good news of Jesus' sufficiency. It's his ability to satisfy. This is the gospel of his enoughness for a church that thinks it has everything, when in fact it's really poor and blind and naked. And we find it in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. It's there in your bulletin on page 6. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, you are our Father, and as a good, loving, and holy Father, without spot or blemish or evil motive, you give what is good to your children. You give us bread to satisfy us. In fact, you give us the true bread coming out of heaven. You give us your Son. And in Him, He satisfies us. In Him, you satisfy us and you chase away. You ruin our taste for the other things that we would seek that are not food, but look like it. And so we pray again this morning that by Your Word, You would chase away our hunger for false foods. And that instead, You would point us to our sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus. Would You do this for us by Your Spirit? Amen. You can be seated. So why are men so hard to shop for? I recently overheard, overheard, I recently overheard a group of women having this discussion, discussing this question, and it was very enlightening. <clears throat> Some of the women in the discussion felt that the men that they knew were so hard to shop for because they were so picky, and so they were really impossible to please. Other women felt like it was easier to probably steal state-protected secrets than to actually get their husbands to tell them what it is they'd really like. But as the conversation wore on, the group of ladies began to move more and more towards a consensus on the question. As they analyzed it more and more, it became apparent that each lady found it harder and harder to come up with good gifts for their husbands because even when they had absolute certainty about what gift their husband would want, it never mattered in the end because their husband would always go out and buy it for himself before they could do anything about it in the first place. 
whether it was the day after Christmas or the middle of July. And this collective indignation begins to rise in this group of ladies as they're talking about it, as they realize that every birthday and every Father's Day and every Christmas, they're, they're forced into buying a gift for a man who always has had everything he wants because he tends to make sure of it himself. And so I thought it was probably a good time to slip away and grab a snack before they turned and asked me anything about it. <clears throat> so what do you get? What do you get the man, the woman, the parent, the child who has everything? That might seem like a difficult question to answer, but, but there's one that's more difficult yet. What do you get a dearly loved member of your family who has almost nothing but thinks they have everything and won't listen to anyone who says otherwise. Because this is the situation of the church of Laodicea, the church of America, the church of Dallas. This is the situation that we are in. Jesus saves his last letter for the church that has everything. At least they think so. Jesus' primary concern for the Laodiceans in the letter that he writes, it's the same concern that he has really for the other six churches before them. It's their witness. Is Laodicea acting as a faithful or an unfaithful witness to the reality of who Christ is? The reality of what Christ has done? And the reality of Christ's transforming presence in their midst even now? Are they faithfully witnessing to that truth? It's not primarily whether or not they're sharing evangelism tracts with their neighbors, but whether or not the Laodicean church is faithfully testifying to the reality of a whole new creation that Jesus began in his first coming. A new creation that he wants the church to begin living in now as we await him to complete it when he returns. You can see this in the titles that Jesus uses for himself in verse 14. He calls himself there the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Meaning that Jesus had come to do what Israel had ultimately failed to do, to testify to who God is, to live in the light of who God is, and to announce God's great rescue operation. The operation that he embarked upon to remake, to recreate all things that had become broken in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus' life and his death on behalf of those he's come to save and his resurrection, they proved who it was that he claimed to be. God, the Son himself, become man. And therefore, everything he says is perfectly true and worthy of trust, and he's now given that ministry of testifying to these same things to the Laodiceans. But Jesus also says that he is the beginning of God's creation, which probably means two things at once. First, it probably means that God the Father created all things at the very beginning through God the Son, meaning that Jesus is the origin of the very first creation, But it also probably means something else. It probably also refers to the theme of new creation 
That's found throughout Isaiah chapters 43 through 66, kind of the second half of the book. Because once the creation fell and became corrupt through our sin in the garden, God's plan was always to recreate. It was always to refashion every rock and every tree and every bird and every star. And it's a new creation that has already begun. And just as human beings were the cause of that corruption, the ones who brought the creation into ruin, so also God begins his new creation with human beings. And Jesus is the very first one. The very beginning of God's renovation project. Just as Isaiah promised that the Messiah would be. In fact, you can even look at the first page of the liturgy in your bulletin this morning that Colin wrote for us. And you can see Colin deciding to use the liturgy from Colossians chapter 1. Because the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing in Colossians 1, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he goes on to explain what he means by that. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That it was through Jesus that God created all things originally, that all things were created through him and for him. And now Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And now he is the head of the body, the church. Now he is the beginning of, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul saying the Lord Jesus was the one through whom God created everything, and now he's the one through whom God is recreating everything that fell in Genesis chapter 3. He's the beginning of that new creation. And he's the head of the body, the church. We're connected to him organically. We have life with him. And he came back from the dead, and he's the beginning of the new creation, and we're connected to him, and so that means through our union with him, we're part of this new creation. We are to testify to this new creation. Just as Jesus was a faithful witness to God's plan for the new creation, so he's given that mission to the Laodiceans and all his church. But his evaluation of them is that they're utterly failing in this. He has nothing to offer in terms of commending them. The the Laodiceans are the only church out of the seven that receive no word. They don't receive one word of commendation from Jesus. The sad verses that a lot of us have heard before, they're in 15 through 17. They're hard to read. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would, I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Another way to rephrase what Jesus is saying is this. You've gone back to believing the very first lie, Laodicea. The lie from the beginning, the lie 
in the garden, that you can be sufficient by yourself, that you can meet all your own needs, that you have met all your own needs. And in fact, are financially and materially and intellectually and spiritually abundant and self-sufficient. And Jesus reminds them that by believing in their own self-sufficiency, they have, as a result, they have no interest at all in testifying to the new creation Jesus has begun because they're too enamored with believing and acting more like Adam and Eve at the fall of the old creation. Self-sufficiency is the lie hissed by the serpent that in becoming like God, we wouldn't need faith anymore. We wouldn't be dependent anymore. We could meet all our own needs and longings, whatever they might be. And ironically, by believing the lie, we actually gained nothing and we lost everything. It's the lie from the beginning. And it's a chief lie in our culture. Being independent, being self-sufficient, seeking one's own individual opportunity and independent fortune, becoming the self-made man, the self-made woman, not letting others tell you what to do, but deciding for yourself. Never admitting defeat, never admitting loss or weakness, neglecting humility and seizing pride and the chance to stand out from the crowd, to separate oneself from the pack. All of these have been American virtues from the start. And in our day and age, they have even morphed into greater levels of selfishness and narcissism. They've morphed into one's own right to not just be fiercely independent, but to decide what is true and what is right and wrong for one's own self to become a creator of reality for oneself, to be God, to be self-sufficient, independent of God and others. It's a delicious lie. It's a lie that promises so much and seems to really and truly deliver on its promise day in and day out. And so it's so easy to believe because it seems to validate itself daily. And the lie of self-sufficiency is all the more easy to believe when, like Adam and Eve and Laodicea, you've been given so much. Which is why those cultures like Laodicea and like our culture, which have so much material wealth, can keep the scam of self-sufficiency going. When a great earthquake took place near Laodicea, A lot of the cities in the region were devastated, including theirs. But Laodiceans, they took pride in their own self-sufficiency for years after the quake because they refused any Roman money to help them rebuild. They paid for it all themselves, they boasted, and they wanted everyone to remember. It's part of the deception that our hearts want from wealth. It's not money's fault. It's the fault of our hearts. It's what we do with it. The real reason we want riches is that riches give us choices. It's what makes them desirable. Riches give us choices. Money equals the power to choose. The choice to make ourselves more comfortable. 
the choice to avoid suffering more than others may be able to avoid it. The choice to give ourselves or our children something that we think is better than what they have, whether it's an education, a better house, a safer neighborhood, a more expensive but nutritious line of food. Wealth holds out the promise of self-sufficiency And for wealthy people like us in this room, judging by global standards, our hearts will always want to look at our wealth and hear the whisper, the siren song promising us self-sufficiency and independence. Our wealth and the lie of self-sufficiency regularly make an evil alliance in our hearts. And again, it's not wealth's fault, it's not money's fault, it's the fault of our hearts. It's what sin does with all good gifts. It corrupts them. It promises and often seems to deliver a tangible feeling of security. It promises and often seems to deliver without fail greater status with our world and with our peers. Nothing helps us feel more sufficient, self-sufficient than when our peers admire us for it. Teenagers, you probably know this very well for yourselves. Who is more admired at school? The unpopular girl who tries to make friends with everyone because she seems so needy? Or the attractive and the accomplished students who act like they don't need anyone because they've got it all figured out? It's interesting how we want to be like that person who doesn't need anyone. Oftentimes the most popular students are just those who've convinced everyone of how self-sufficient and independent they are. And what Jesus is confronting Laodicea about is not that they've learned how to feed themselves, not that they've learned how to clothe themselves and shop for themselves and keep a household budget. He's not criticizing them for being responsible and wise. He's saying to them, you've convinced yourself that you don't really need me to such an extent that we don't have much of a relationship anymore. You don't long for me or seek after me or have a hunger for me because your ability to seek self-satisfaction has lulled you into uselessness for the kingdom. You've become useless and a faithless witness. And uselessness is actually the point of Jesus' metaphor of lukewarm water. This has been confusing for some. Sometimes I think there are some commentators who think that Jesus is actually saying to Laodicea, I wish that you were either really on fire for me or you were cold and dead and had no life in me at all. Jesus isn't saying that. That's weird. He's not saying that. Jesus is referring to something instead that every Laodicean would have known about. The neighboring city of Hierapolis had hot medicinal springs that were useful for cooking and bathing and healing. And the nearby city of Colossae was fed by cold mountain streams that made for refreshing drinking water. But Laodicea had neither of these things, and it had to pipe its water in from other sources. And by the time the water arrived in the pipes, it was lukewarm. It was gross. Several years ago, my daughter, Aubrey, she was two or three at this point. 
and were wrestling around in her room. And at some point, she climbed up onto her bed during the game, and then she stopped, curious at what she'd found. Her face lit up as she reached down into the little space between her bed and the wall, and she pulled out a long-lost sippy cup from the Cretaceous period. And I immediately saw where her train of thought was going. But it was just simply too late. She took a swig from that ancient plastic vessel. (laughs) And she was greeted with very, very old milk. (laughs) I mean, that milk could have been used as the premise for a new bioweapons program or something. (laughs) I don't know how long it had been in there, but her response was instantaneous and explosive. (laughs) And Jesus is saying here, just as lukewarm water is useless, so also are you, Laodicea. I mean, with hot water, I can clean things, I can bathe With cold water, I can take a nice, refreshing drink on a hot day, but what are you going to do with lukewarm water? It's useless. It's good for nothing except to spit it out. And Jesus' very, very serious warning is just as with the Ephesian church, the first one to get a letter, Jesus would remove the Laodicean church altogether if it continues as they're going. But this isn't, this isn't what Jesus wants, which is why he's writing them a letter. This is why in verse 18 he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire and that you may be truly rich and white garments so that you may be truly clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may truly see. The gold that they're told to buy from Christ, it carries the picture of refining the removal of sin as we see it in the rest of Scripture, like Proverbs 27, 21, and Malachi 3, and 1 Peter 1. Gold's being refined and the impurities removed. The white robes bring to mind the lucrative clothing industry that existed in Laodicea. And then he tells them that they need a healing salve for their spiritual eyes so that they could see again which is once more taking a jab at local pride, which was their well-known guild of physicians. Because you see, Laodicea, like Dallas, was a center of luxury culture, finance and fashion and cutting-edge technology. This part of Jesus' letter would have had the same effect as Jesus making the rounds at North Park Mall. He walks into the glittering stores of Tiffany's and Eisman's and says, You need real riches for me. Not all this plastic cereal box junk, but riches that only I can give. Jesus walks into Neiman's and to Burberry and tells them that their clothes are filthy rags and they need real clothes from him. And then he makes his last stop through eye masters and lens crafters and he tells them that people are more blind after leaving their stores, not less. 
Because those who think they're rich when they're really poor are the most meager of all in Jesus' mind. Those who think they're the most fashionably dressed when they're really naked receive the most pity. And those who think they see well when in fact they see very dimly are the most blind. And then Jesus backs up this warning by reminding them, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Much like Hebrews chapter 13 from our assurance of pardon this morning, Jesus' love, his discipline is brought to those he loves. His words of warning are brought to those he considers children, sons, and daughters. And although we can make much of the fact that Jesus doesn't encourage or commend this church for any spiritual fruit, We should never ever think that this means Jesus doesn't love or care for her. Because Jesus knows the answer to the question. Jesus knows the answer to the question, what do you give a dearly loved wife who thinks she has everything when she really has nothing? He knows the answer to the question. And the answer is you give her the naked truth. You tell her the truth about her condition about her nakedness, about her poverty. Because that's what love does. That's what Jesus does. He comes into our lives, often uninvited and still more resisted, but He comes into our lives through His Word, through His leading in prayer, through the wise counsel of friends and spiritual leaders, and He sticks His nose into our self-sufficient business anyway, and He says, you know what? You're not as rich as you think. Not just materially, but spiritually, mentally, intellectually, whatever that might be for us. You're not as put together as you think. You're not as insightful and wise as you'd like to believe. And you're not as moral and pure as you certainly would like everyone else to believe either. And I know the depths of your own deception better than anybody, but I still love you so much more than anyone else and more than you could possibly know or dream. And I love you enough to tell you the truth about your own nakedness, your own desperate need. And I love you enough not just to tell you, but to do something about it. And what does he do? He satisfies us with himself. Completely in this life? No. He doesn't satisfy us completely in this life. Not yet. But he invites us into a deeper relationship and fellowship with him so that he creates a greater hunger in us for him than we have for our own self-sufficiency. It's, you're in a really good place when you have a hunger and a longing for Jesus even though you're not finding it completely and utterly fulfilled every day, and you won't until his return, when you're in a place of hungering and longing for him, you're in a good place. That's what he wants for us. And he satisfies us to some extent, but not to a full extent until he returns. This is what the famous line from verse 20, it's actually all about. This is what the line from verse 20 is about. Behold, I stand at the door and knock... If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is not a call to non-Christians to walk down the aisle 
and make a decision to let poor, lost, and powerless Jesus into their hearts. This is a poor, lost, and powerless church that needs to reconnect with her true husband again. The language that Jesus uses here, it's taken from Song of Solomon chapter 5. Where the bridegroom in the love story comes home while his wife is asleep. And he pleads with her to let him in because he knows that she's lonely and he knows that what she needs more than anything else is the love that he can give her. Jesus is an eager husband already married to his wife in a covenant relationship that can't break, and he's calling out to her while she hesitates. And what does he want from her? He wants her to let him in. He wants from her to let him in so he can ruin her taste and her hunger for her fool's gold and her fake designer clothing and her snake oil concoctions that can never heal. Every early father of the church and even a lot of modern commentators, they see a strong reference to the Lord's Supper in this verse. And I think, I agree, I think it's staring us right in the face. To dine with Jesus is to eat his body and drink his blood by grace through faith because the wine and the bread, they're held out to us as signs and as promises that he is ours and we are his. The early church reading this from verse 20, they know what Jesus means. He's inviting them to come eat with him by grace through faith. And they outwardly show that and demonstrate that by coming to the table. The bread and the wine are signs and promises that he alone is our sufficiency and that we have no sufficiency in ourselves. They're signs that he alone satisfies and that will never satisfy ourselves looking anywhere else. Jesus is inviting his church to stop living in neglect of his presence. But instead, to be reminded again and again throughout every day that he is present with them in their hearts, in their homes, in their workplaces, in their schools, in their relationships, making them new and using them to make his world new again. And their little places of influence and work. This wonderful news draws us to prayer, it draws us to scripture and to the Lord's table and to family worship, to singing and praising, not simply out of duty, but out of the delight and an all-sufficient Savior who proves to us that everything else is still going to leave us hungry, but that he will give us a satisfaction that grows into fullness that we will taste when he comes again. So prepare room and open wide your heart and let him dine with you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.